You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show where we've been reflecting on the year that was 2022 and what a year it was. So in today's show we will look back at the month of August uh, on Drive Time Show. The United Kingdom continued to experience heat waves with its third one in August lasting for six days. These were caused by high pressure. These were caused by raising high pressure up from the European continent. There was also more grass fires and wildfires than average. And in August, a drought was declared in many regions. August 28, Pakistan declared a climate catastrophe, an appeal for international assistance. It had the world's deadliest flood since 2017. August was also the month in which Draft Time Show held its special Islam 101 week, where over the course of a week we focused on the five pillars and six articles of faith of Islam. So, which are the articles of faith are unity of God, his angels, his books, his prophets, the last day, divine decree, and the five pillars are Kalma, bearing witness that there is only one God, and Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is his messenger, prayer, fasting in the month of Ramadan, zakat, which is a form of charity in Islam, and hajj, pilgrimage. So let's take a moment today to reflect on that special week. Assalamu alaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Imam Ibrahim Noonan Saab. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Pleasure to have you here with us, Imam Noonan. We're, we're talking about the, the, the oneness of God um, and, and the importance of recognizing God. But before we go into the scientific aspect, can you discuss uh, and let our listeners know about the importance of recognizing the Creator before you can touch on the scientific aspects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, I think both of you have uh, articulated that pretty well. I mean, the main thing here is um, if you study uh, religious history from all the prophets of God, and particularly the last prophet, Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, there was always a great emphasis by all the prophets of God, including Jesus, peace be upon him, of the oneness of God. And um, Islam has brought it to another level by actually bring it in within the creed, which is La ilaha illallah, there's none worthy of worship except Allah. So here, the importance for Muslims was that uniqueness, that oneness, that greatness, that magnificence, the divine being, which has no equal. And uh, of course, the creator of all existence. So for a Muslim, that love, that dependence, that uh, obedience towards him, uh, is essential, and uh, anyone who is fully under, understood and grasped this concept, then Allah is like a lamp. When you turn on a lamp, the light turns on, and the light is there. 
you'll always head towards that light and you will never want to be in the darkness. So that oneness of God is, is, is so important in that you share nothing with him. There's nothing like him, nothing near him, nothing around him. There's nothing that compares to him in his being, in his nature, uh, in his, uh, you know, his oneness. So this is the oneness of God. It, it's a very remarkable um, actual um, you know, depiction of, of the divine being. Mm-hmm. But would, would someone need to then first believe in the existence of God before coming on to the oneness of God? And I, I just, just why I want to ask that is because of the situation that we're seeing around the world today. Um, when this, the, I mean, we, we discussed the, the, the lack of morality, the, mm, the, the human greed, greed. Um, and, and the problems that that, that has caused. Uh, and His Holiness touched on this in yesterday's speech, in his final session speech, um, that the, where he stated that um, the way that the world can find peace again is by turning to God. This is 100%. Hazrat Khalifa al-Nasi, the fifth, may Allah be his helper, profoundly explained and elaborated upon this point, which, in fact, the world needs to hear. It's a case of realizing that um, in the last, let's say, 2,000 years, um, even less than 2,000 years, let's say from 17th century onwards, um, but I would say 2,000 years because of the time of Jesus onwards, but let's say 17th century, mankind has been slowly moving away from the belief in the existence of of a divine being. And one may ask, has the world been successful from 17th century up to where we are now? Rather, we see the opposite happening. We see that the world has declined in its ability to uphold justice, in its ability to uphold moral ethics and principles where where the, their world became smaller and smaller in a materialistic way and by being moving away from the, the divine uh, God Almighty you enter into uh, an abyss of darkness and that's what it is mm. um, I mean like I gave earlier on about the, the example of a light of a lamp if you move away from it far enough you're in darkness you can't see anything mm. you can't you can't visualize reality you actually can't understand what reality is anymore. So you can only. You can only sorry, so, go ahead. Sorry. No. So, so uh, uh, Imam Nunez, do you think then you have to fight because of the time that we live in and the you know the nature of society now that you actually have to fight like with like? So instead of um, laying down your marker, saying, "Look, you know what? There, there is but one God, and His name is Allah." And as a true, let's just say a true believer, let alone a Muslim, you believe in that one creator. But nowadays, like you said, you know, from you know, the 17th century, there's been that movement away from spirituality, uh, the movement away from the belief of one God. So therefore, do we need to hearken those who have moved, moved away from that spirituality, the oneness or the one God, using the, the the tools that we have, which is, you know, actually, instead of you just making that declaration and, you know, believing, having that, you know, that, the, the you know, what's the old adage, that uh, leap of faith, okay, into the unknown. We need tangibility nowadays. 
right? Human beings are like that. They want to see, feel, touch. So how, you know, for our listeners out there, can we prove the oneness of God scientifically? That's a very good question. And um, can it be proven? My simple answer is yes. There you go. Um, <laughs> I'm, it, it can be proven. And um, I'm not a scientist. But if I may give this example, that um, uh, a few days ago we were celebrating, or maybe celebrating is the wrong word, we were participating in the National Islam of Ireland, Majlis Qadam al And on my way from my residence to the mosque, I was actually quickly thinking in my mind, what will I say to these young men? Uh, after the after the Sajjah prayers, the early morning prayers in the Durs, what will I what, what can I say to them? So on my way, I noticed in the beautiful sky a beautiful moon and stars all around it. And the first thing that came in my mind was how great and how magnificent was uh, the creation of the divine, which is Allah. And I said, the praising Almighty Allah that we see these. Celestial, uh, you know, signs of the moon and the stars and the galaxy and creation and things like that. And in within that, you see um, a unified um, existence, a unified um, um, observation of unity, actually. And uh, so when I got there, I started talking to him about this, that um, if you look deep into science in an objective way, not being biased in any way or another, um, you cannot but come to the conclusion that a divine being exists, some internal, external, I should say, intelligent being that certainly created, created everything around us. And, <coughs> excuse me, and um, the, the, the beauty about the Holy Quran, and that is the thing now, and you mentioned about uh, earlier on about, you know, you know uh, fight back in a way, we have to show them now from the Holy Quran that the Holy Quran is scientifically 100% accurate in proving scientifically the existence and the, the oneness of God Almighty. That the Quran is full of so many verses uh, showing his existence um, about the expansion in the universe, about meditation, reflecting upon his creation. Uh, you know, take a look and take another look. You, when you become exhausted, but you will come back with the conclusion that there is a divine existence and, the, and that can be proven scientifically. Mm. <coughs> Imam, Imam uh, Nun, coming back onto the oneness of God, I mean, you've covered this um, very beautifully and eloquently uh, with the scientific and the the other ways of recognizing and understanding the existence of God. But I mean, where, as you've studied Christianity um, in great great detail, I mean, I could say that much more than a lot of Christians have. Um, how did the concept of Trinity enter Christianity and, and go against the oneness of what Jesus actually taught himself? You know what? Um, um, often when you talk about Trinity or Triune God and Trinitarianism theology, etc., etc., they, they would often talk about, uh, and I, I've heard it for many years as, as a Christian while I was studying, studying at university in theology and philosophy and they always brought this aspect of it's a mystery. And the thing that I find right now in my life at this point in time is that it's an absolute mystery. Where did this concept come from? Because it certainly didn't come from Scripture. It certainly didn't come from the Old Testament. And it certainly did not come from Jesus himself. So the answer is simple. As Christianity evolved, 
in time and over time, um, evolving in its theology, in its interpretation of who Jesus was and what Jesus was. Eventually, this concept came up in fourth century, and it's it's really a fourth century concept that has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever, and that's a fact. That's that's um, you know, I, I say that very boldly that in my years of research academically it, it's it there's no concept of it and, and it has no place in uh, the teaching or or, or be, being even associated with Jesus at all so basically it was a fourth century concept which actually believe it or not um, came out of an argument of the nature of Jesus mm-hmm. some people were saying that um, he is God he is part of the substance substance of God known as Oosia and homosius, they're two Greek words, um, um, which means substance, uh, part of God, uh, part of his, his uh, substance. Uh, they had to use that language to try and convince um, uh, early Christians who maybe didn't believe in that. And I'm sure you've heard of this already, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This is where all this thing came about. It was a huge debate, severe debate, uh, academically, theologically, and physically, by the way, they were started fighting each other physically because certain bishops didn't agree that Jesus was God. So it's a fourth century theology which has nothing to do, as I already mentioned, with Jesus. It, it had come about over the debate with uh, um, uh, Arian, or Arius, who debated with other bishops at that time. Uh, Oregon, who came before him, actually, in about 180 AD, um, who actually made it clear to everyone that Jesus was created like every other human being. And that he had no role in 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 uh, the uh, in the same position and same status as God, and it then evolved from there, where, where others believed in the nature of God that he was Jesus was God Himself. So that essentially, it's fourth century theology, which has nothing to do with with Jesus whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So we we spoke about and you you touched upon the movement away uh, from spirituality and the belief in one God. Uh, in recent times, uh, I say recent times, maybe you know, in, uh, I think you pointed out from the 17th century onwards to present day. So with that, that's aligned to this increase in atheism. And sources now say that actually an atheist society is actually a better society to live in because religion being, I mean, if if we look at what we your answer to uh, the idea of Trinity is all but man-made mm. uh, in terms of that particular concept within Christianity. So, you know, is that true? What's your opinion on this then? So is it better to live in an atheist society whereby there is no uh, counter-argument to a one, uh, a oneness, uh, the oneness of God, whereby you do have you know, uh, differing opinions, whilst is that versus uh, a, a society whereby you just live by a moral code? What is better then, in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, after, again, I have to, I would like to stress this point. Um, I did a research paper recently, actually, I spoke on it actually a month ago, this paper written on this very point, on this, similar to this point, actually. Um, and my own research, and it's not my research, the research is based on the Quran, it's based upon uh, prophets of God. 
Um, so if we look at um, religious history um, from the time of Adam right up to the time of Prophet Muhammad, right up to Jesus, right up to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the question we see and the thing that we observe that wherever there was a religious society, whether that was you know, Christian or Muslim or Jewish or um, Hinduism, whatever it may be, just on a religious point, this moral society was much higher and better ethically, morals, virtues were higher, and it, it created a more moral-based society, and even to a degree, peaceful society, to a degree. I mean, of course, there have been conflicts, but what we've noticed and what we've observed that a religious society is it creates a better peaceful world because those who act upon their religion, act upon their faith, whether whatever faith they belong to, uh, would be were observed to be more kind, more patient, more tolerant, more forgiving, and they would try their best to live uh, amicably amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Ireland, as I can give Ireland as an example, and I remember Ireland um, in that in those times. Uh, in, I was born in the kind of the end phase of this coming out of Ireland, when Ireland turned the way it is at the moment. But um, there were times in Ireland you could leave your door open, mm-hmm. and you would have no fear someone would walk into your house. You could um, go to any shop in Ireland, uh, you know, like a local newspaper shop. You wouldn't find a single pornographic magazine or any unnecessary immoral uh, things in the in the shops. You could you would hardly ever hear. Uh, a police car, a siren, nothing. And the ba- the reason was, even though Ireland was a predominantly Catholic country, but people practiced their faith, mm-hmm. and therefore society was more peaceful, more loving, more caring, more um, um, uh, law-abiding. Ethical. I suppose. Yeah, lo- even including law-abiding, absolutely mm-hmm. law-abiding. Yes. So, in my opinion, would an atheist society, and I and I say this, and I hope none of my atheist friends will take offence. Uh, to me saying this because I love them all um, but the fact is would an atheist society a circular society um, bring about a more peaceful, no, the answer is absolutely not and why I say that is because um, if we go back to 17th century when the enlightenment happened where they decided that they didn't need God anymore that they were more uh, that science Science, all, it was only science that they needed to, to answer everything, and they had logic and rationale. They didn't need a divine being. But now, hundreds of years later, we should be asking society, has secularism worked? The answer is no. Mm. It has failed, in my opinion. Has uh, modernism worked? No. Yes, there's some benefits to modernism in modern science, modern technologies, the fact that we can talk, I can talk to you from here in Ireland, these are the benefits. But have they, have they um, um, been successful in building the very society, moral-based society, just society, which they demand that religion didn't give them, but atheism could give it to them? The answer is absolutely not. Mm. And there are some modern contemporary uh, scholars right now, I've been, I've been researching their work, um, who are uh, sociologists, they are now asking the question, did we get it wrong? Should we have, was it right, was it wrong to push religion to the back seat? Mm. Now they're asking, maybe we have got it wrong. Maybe it's time to bring religious teaching 
practice back into mainstream society. And I, and, I, and I fully agree with this. And I think, you know, again, the answer to your question, would an atheist-based society uh, bring about peace? The answer is no. And my, 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 my answer is emphatic in that. I would say no, I don't believe it can. I mean, I think uh, I totally agree with you there because if it were to be a utopian society, uh, you would have thought with the technolo technological advancements that we've seen in th over 300 years, we would be able to eradicate things like um, hunger. It's as simple Absolutely. as that. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. We should yeah. be able, and we are able to, eradicate world hunger. But because yeah. of whatever political um, motivations there are, it's still going on. We should be able to come to, if we are such um, highbrow intellectual beings, come to a detente regarding conflict, whereby yeah. we know that actually the nuclear arsenals that we hold would decimate the world a thousand times over. Therefore, it's actually, you know, it's a, they call it a deterrent, but it's it's a it's a wooden uh, well what's the word for it it's it's just a fallacy in that sense yeah. right yeah. so yeah I would totally agree with you in that uh, you know one hundred percent that actually if it were purely a secular point of view regarding society then why have we not achieved it yet yeah it's, it's failed it's 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 completely failed in my opinion mm. um, you know I mean I say that respectfully. Uh, to all those who may believe in that, but it has failed. Uh, it, it completely failed. But if we look at, as I said earlier on, um, if you look at the life of the Prophet, in his lifetime, in his society, in his social structure, it was more peaceful in the sense of society in general. No, the wars are something else. They were when, when, when the wars were brought onto Islam. But the point is, when people acted upon justice and uh, upon justice and love and tolerance. And, and the belief of one God and all these things, it was it was a much better society. Imam mm. I mean, atheism, of course, is is one end of the spectrum, and you could probably say this is not, this isn't the other end of it. It's they're both in a way they're aligned, and that is idolatry, shirk, associating partners with God. Mm. How? I mean, what what is the what if you can tell the concept? I mean, there is it's a very delicate issue as well. I mean, it is there's there's of course there's um, very major aspects of it, but there's a very there's a thin lining as, as well. There's a thin line of where you cross, and it turns into associating partners. I and mean, lying as well is also one of them. But can you mm. can you explain this concept of uh, association with God? Well, I mean, the very simple illustration I'll give to you, and I have the the fortunate. Uh, um, what's the word? The, word, the fortunate um, um, experience of this with a person um, many years ago when I was flying to um, Indonesia at the time of the the tsunami, when Hazrat Khalifa Tulmisi sent me out there, may Allah be his helper. I was on a plane next to a doctor who was sitting beside me, who was not um, um, an Amity doctor, but he was a doctor, no doubt, and he was obviously a very specialised, skilled intelligent man and um, when the plane took off I started lifting my hands and doing dua and uh, obviously praying to Almighty Allah 
to grant me and all of us on the plane a safe journey to our destination. And um, when I finished my prayer, this person said, um, why did you do that? And I said, well, you know, I was just praying to God Almighty that to keep us all safe, all, everyone on the plane, the pilots and everyone, and that we reach our um, destiny uh, safely. And his response to me was, I don't need God, and uh, I, I put more trust in the pilot than I do in, in, in the divine being. Right? So I turned to him and I said to him, that in, in Islamic terminology is you are associating the brilliance of a pilot or the, the, the intelligence and the skills of a pilot over the belief in one God, and therefore that's in Arab terminology, shirk, you are associating the powers of a man over the divine being. And, and that's essentially what it is, and that is in every aspect of your life, uh, every human being, the day you start saying, I am what I am because of me and not because of anything else, that is a form of shirk. And that means if you say, I'm the best looking man in the world, my, my, my looks are fine and my, the, the, the handsomeness of myself, uh, it's, it's my genetics, that's shirk because you should be praising God Almighty for giving you those handsome attributes, features, etc. If you say to yourself, I am wealthy because of my own ability, my own intelligence, I'm a billionaire because I did this myself, you're again shirked because you're not, uh, you're, you're attributing your abilities rather than the ability of the divine. But that is what shirk is. And, um, and er every human being needs to appreciate that everything that you have and everything that you are is based upon the, the graciousness, the Rahmaniyat and the Rahimiyat of God Almighty. And it is as simple as that. And uh, so, um, yeah, so, that's sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Imam Noon is up. Was he a Muslim then? I take it he was. He was a ex-Muslim. Yes. Oh, okay. So did he did yeah. he appreciate that? Um, you know, pointing out this this you know this delicate side of shirk to him, and did he agree? What was his opinion in the end? No, he didn't agree. Obviously, we had a bit of a long discussion, and mm. actually, we had a, an hour discussion into the flight. And uh, it's quite a long flight uh, to Indonesia, anyway. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, but we, but I think after an hour, two of us realised, let's leave it at that right yeah. now. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, but um, I did say to him, I did give him examples. I, I gave him one example while we we're on our way to there towards the end, and I told him of a of a, of a great companion of the promised Messiah. Um, whose name is escapes my mind right now, who was actually in Indonesia, the place that we're going to, and uh, at that time, and um, you probably were aware of this as well yourselves, where there was a fire um, uh, engulfing houses in Indonesia, and in fact it was in the same area that we were going to, uh, Banda Aceh, mm -hmm. and um, and I told him that this companion was in his house when the when the the woods behind them, the houses next to him were engulfed in flames. And everyone pleaded with uh, this companion to come out because he was going to die if he doesn't come out. And he came out, and uh, it's a long story, but I'm cutting it short. But he came out and he told everyone, if if I if the promised Messiah is not true and he's not the Mahdi and the Messiah, then I would be engulfed in flames. But if he's true, then my house will not be touched. And Alhamdulillah, uh, minutes after he said that, a huge thunderstorm came down and his house was saved and himself, right? So I was showing him this example, this is where the divine steps in, mm -hmm. right? And now, of course, he was taken aback by this, and 
in, I mean, of course, he was trying to think about some ideas of coincidence, luck, all these things. But really, deep down, I believe he knew that, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty um, unique and that uh, suddenly you're being engulfed and suddenly out of nowhere, the thunderstorm, the clouds would open. So, I mean, this is the reality. So I think the weeks later when we were talking to each other, I did manage to bring him around to the point of view that, yes, perhaps we should be more appreciative of the possibility of the divine rather than him believing in, in God himself. Mm. So with that, do you think that modern day society, whether we be in the West or wherever globally now, that this movement away from spirituality, movement away from the oneness of God is quite in a subtle way um, taking other I suppose other concepts and associating them with God. Now I'll give you an example because say for instance in the Western world you know mammon is has become the new God right? Mm. The, the pursuit mm. of money, the pursuit of excellence yes could that not also be taken as a, a, you know, a facet or a type of shirk? Yes, because you're starting to idolize money. And uh, your, your, your iPhone, which is 600 euros or 300 euros or whatever, 100 mm -hmm. euros or pounds it may be, you, you, this is your God. This is what you want. And you're, you're, you're just totally engrossed on a phone that you're willing to pay out 600, 700, 500, whatever the cost of them are now. Uh, they become your God because they become your everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, an example for me would be that, um, again, that if you are a wealthy person you, and you can't live without your millions because you, your lifestyle will, will change, you, you, you wouldn't have the same food on the table or the same 3,000 pound euro suits, cars, whatever it may be. So you're after money, you have to have more money, more money, more money. It's a god, it is an idol, and I would agree with you. It is shirk, in my opinion. Mm. You're putting this over Allah. Imam Noon, and then in this case, I mean, with we know even with our leaders now who are, you can say, swimming in pools of money, mm. how do we break that? How do we yeah, so get how, them? How do we cast away these... You know, the, the, you know these 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 trappings. Then, and how do we come to our true selves? Yeah, and, and ultimately to God. You know, um, again, I, I can only go from my own experience because I don't know about the experience of other people's. I mean, I can give a theological answer to this as well, but um, I had the blessings and the honor of um, going to Pakistan in 2005 in the earthquake, and um, I left on a Friday when the earthquake happened. Sorry, the earthquake happened on a Friday. I was in Pakistan on a Saturday in the evening. And I can tell you this with all truthfulness. When I saw the destruction, when I saw the, the, the traumatizing of people, when I saw the horrific injuries that I saw, when I saw death, life, I saw it all in, in that point in time. And I still remember even now we were, where we were camped in, um, in, in, in Buj in, in Pakistan, um, I, I had only one jug. I had a jug and a mirror. Okay, I, I'll explain this. You'll understand this in a minute. When, when myself and others, after weeks, because there was no showers, there was no hot facilities, there was no bathrooms as such, we had to use the river, the Nahar, not far from us. And I remember when I went down to wash my hair, and I had a mirror with me in my bag, and that jug came the most valuable thing to me 
because not only could I wash myself with it, mm. I could drink from it. Mm-hmm. I can do lots of things with it. And the person beside me who was a doctor asked me, <laughs> if you allow me to use your jug, I will allow you to use my scissors, right? <laughs> and we can use the mirror together to trim our hair or whatever. And suddenly these became the most important things in our life, mm-hmm. right? So yes, when you face some um, um, experience of tragedy, it's, it clearly brings you back to reality on or, or, or realization that um, this wealth and these things really can save you. The only thing that can save you is the realization of the simplicity that God has taught in our hearts to be humble and to be gratis- show gratitude that he gives us everything and he can take it away from us from in, in a second. Mm-hmm. Well, Ibrahim, uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, thank you once again for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank pleasure. you. Pleasure. Wa now that was Imam Ibrahim Noonan and he was talking about the oneness of God and us answering different questions. Now the prophets uh, of Allah the Almighty as we believe is one of the articles of uh, faith in Islam. So all those prophets sent by God had one common mission to guide mankind to its creator through their example. In the Holy Quran it is stated and there is no people to whom a warner has not been sent. Holy Quran chapter 35 verse 25. And elsewhere in the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty says and for every people there is a messenger. That is from chapter 10 verse 48. Now let's hear more on this topic from Imam Usama Mubarak. Imam Usama Mubarak um, who is uh, a, a graduate of the Jamia Ahmadiyya UK, uh, the, the University of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community for Theology and Modern Languages. Um, um, Imam Osama is with us. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum salam, peace be upon you too, and Zakhlaf for having me. Thank you very much for uh, for your time and 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 connecting with us. Um, so as we are discussing in, in the previous hour, we were discussing about Salat, uh, the um, the second pillar of Islam, or uh, uh, one of the pillars of Islam, which is is a must. And without that, we cannot connect with God Almighty. We cannot fulfill our purpose of 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 us being here. Uh, but then, in this hour, which is also connection with 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 Salat, is that the prophets have taught us how to pray. But then. This, you know, in this hour, we will only focus on the the importance of prophets. Why why prophets are with us here? So, could you you know kindly explain us what's the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet? Because you know sometimes when we we, we can't really there, there there will be philosophers, right? Let's say who would say that uh, you know the prophets that have come they, they were just humans like us. So they were not, you know, special people. They were just, uh, you know, we don't believe in God. So they were, they were just normal humans. So they might say that, okay, they were just, just, just humans. They were not, you know, prophets. There's nothing such as prophets. But then, others might say, 
some of the faiths or some of the religions might not accept other prophets and they would say that you know that that specific prophet we don't believe him in, as a prophet um we believe our prophet is prophet so how do we distinguish or how do we know the differences between a false prophet and a true prophet i mean there's so much to take in like this question you could go on and on mm-hmm. um especially considering that you mentioned how people had this sort of theory or this mindset back in the days as well they wouldn't expect prophets to be human beings but god almighty himself um has mentioned in the holy quran where uh, prophets have been declared as mortal mm-hmm. some uh, whether they have been whether they have been referred to as a, as a bashar which which means a mortal human being mm-hmm. so that's one distinction they aren't extraordinary human beings that have different sort of faculties outside of the realm of nature that we understand they are human beings like us they die and they live just like us so that's one thing that we need to get straight as well mm-hmm. now with the distinction of um you know a false and a true prophet there's so many other things that you can have a look at for example uh, there is a book written by the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza tahir ahmed peace be upon him and uh, the book is called true insights into the concept of khatm nabuwwat so mm-hmm. Uh, the seal of prophethood and in that he makes a reference to a statement of a very very renowned well-known islamic jurist of the 14th century called ibn al-qayyim and uh, he is even quoted nowadays as well with the books that he's written and his work on jurisprudence etc so ibn al-qayyim wrote in the 14th century he said ever since the world has been created Many false claimants to prophethood made their claims and displayed some pomp and glory in the beginning but they could not achieve their objectives nor were they granted a long time period the prophets of Allah the almighty and their followers annihilated them and rendered them totally helpless this is the way of Allah from the beginning of times and so will it remain so in analysis of this the statement of ibn al-qayyim the fourth caliph um then explains and he writes in his book that it has never happened that a false claimant should be looked upon with a great hope mm-hmm. that he be very popular and should suddenly lose all his popularity because of his claim mm-hmm. now um other things that you have to consider when taking this into consideration is that prophets in the past have said faqad labistu fikum umran and this means and it's, it's a verse in the quran as well which was recurred a number of times where they are saying that i have most certainly lived amongst you as in to say you have seen me live you have seen my morals you have seen my characteristics and my way of life you know how i've carried myself and i am no you know ordinary human being in the sense of my uh, in, in regards to my morals uh, and of course they are humble in nature so it speaks for themselves their character speaks for themselves so that's one distinction that you notice their way of life and it's completely different to any other human being they have a spiritual connection with god almighty that is second to none hmm. and with with regards to the false claimant for example uh, there is um, a chapter in the holy quran chapter 69 called surah al-haqqa and in that uh, i'll read the translation it's a bit lengthy hmm. uh, god almighty says that and if he had falsely attributed even a trivial statement to us we would surely have seized him by the right hand and then surely we would have severed his jugular vein and none of you could shield him from us 
that is not to say it would be a, a barbaric sort of torture and the killing of a person, but that is to say that they wouldn't be able to advance in their mission of propagating this false message, this false claim. Hmm. Right? <laughs> so uh, that, that is one thing that makes them different from us, that those people who do make these false claims, God Almighty promises that he wouldn't let them get away with it. Right? Yep. He would actually seize them and he would sever them by the jugular vein. Yep. And uh, on the other side, again, coming back to the prophets and um, a verse in favor of the prophets and their truth, you find how in chapter 58, verse 22, God Almighty makes a promise. And what you can extrapolate from this promise is that God Almighty is ensuring that there is a guarantee of victory for mm-hmm. the messengers, for his messengers. So the verse is, which translates to most surely I will prevail I and my messengers mm-hmm. and that's exactly how history unfolded so prophets who were you know threatened beyond escape beyond measure they managed to become triumphant against all odds time and again hmm. this is this is the success that we see in prophets as well that you know, after a prophet has demised, we still remember them. We also uh, worship um, because of them, right? So the, the mm. prayers so that it's we a do, legacy that leaves it's, behind. It's them. a legacy that leaves behind the followers as well of that prophet that also mentioned uh, in in the scriptures in the Holy Quran as well. The 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 success, the uh, divine um, success. Um, or let's say the success they they have had, you know, when when no one was there to help them, they were they were helped by God Almighty. And this way, this community of believers were established by the Prophet of God. And this is how we know. Yeah, wonderful, uh, wonderful answer actually. Um, so we you know we know who's 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 a false prophet. Clearly, that there is no success, and God Almighty uh, immediately. Uh, punishes him in in, in different mm. ways. Um, now, when we look at the prophets, uh, they were often known to have seeked and received divine help. Now, as Ahmadis, do we, uh, you know, believe in a living relationship with Allah Almighty, like the relationship shared between God and His prophets mm. and, and 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 His servants? I mean, it's interesting we speak of prophets, but of course we should remember that. This communion or relationship with God Almighty isn't confined to prophets alone. It's not limited. Mm-hmm. So the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, he wrote in Majmu'ah um, Ishtaharat, which was a series of announcements, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote the following, and I quote, that a living faith is that through which we can find the living God. Mm-hmm. The living God is he who can make us a direct recipient of revelation or could at least bring us in contact with one who has been a direct recipient of revelation. Mm-hmm. I convey this good news to the whole world that the God of Islam is such a living God. Now, of course, we should then consequently bear in mind that it is the Holy Quran that is always placed at the very forefront of, you know, our quest of trying to understand Islam better. Mm-hmm. So with concepts like these as to whether one can have a living relationship with God or not, the words of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, that I just alluded to, are directly linked with the teachings of the Holy Quran. Because mm-hmm. in chapter 2, verse 256, a very famous verse in the Islamic world known as Aytul Kursi, which is recited time and again, uh, in that it starts off with, Allahu la ilaha illa huwal hayyul qayyum, 
which translates to Allah, there is no God but He, the living, the self-subsisting, and all-sustaining. So, in short, yes, we most certainly believe in establishing a relationship or communion with God Almighty. And that's what we as Muslims aspire to do because God Almighty has made it clear that He is living. And if we, I mean, we are left with the only opportunity to actually avail this door of blessings mm-hmm. that has forever remained open to us and will continue to remain open to us, inshallah, inshallah. God willing. God willing yep. And that is the door which leads us to nearness of God Almighty through, of course, things like prayer and gratitude. Hmm. So, yeah, in short, I think. Yeah, wonderful. Um, it, the, the, the next question that I will be asking is, it's... Um, it's maybe a question which is related to the first question uh, that, um, and this question is that can you still be a believer without believing the truth of a prophet? Now, mm. you know, I asked that there are, you know, religions uh, who don't, they believe in their own prophet or mm. the, the prophets before them, but not the prophets after them. So can you still be a believer? Because Islam is a religion, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is a prophet that has respected all the other prophets and mm. he has given the um the honor of of other prophets and he himself in one of the sayings of the holy prophet he before god almighty revealed to him that you are the ultimate and the perfect prophet as the exemplar prophet for all the all the others before mm. this this was revealed to him he used to praise the previous prophets especially uh, Prophet Abraham and Prophet Moses. So, mm. it, what is what what is our belief on on um, on belief? Can you still be a believer if you do not believe in the other prophets or you don't believe in the truth of uh, the, uh, the the prophets? Mm. I mean, uh, we're not here to pass edicts, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but one thing you can do is make it very very clear as to what the beliefs of uh, Muslims are. And if you observe what the Holy Quran and the Ahadith, the sayings of the Holy Prophet وسلم, peace be upon him, um, uh, refer to in this matter, it, it becomes very clear to you immediately. Because let's turn to chapter 2, verse 286, where, where God Almighty says, <laughs> Which translates to, all of them, and here it refers to believers. Mm. All of all of the believers believe in Allah and in His and, his, and in His angels yep. and in His books and in His messenger. And then God says, "We make no distinction between any of His messengers." Mm. So this means that true believers should, of course, uh, with this in mind, accept all the messengers of God without any exception. And you, you can't make any distinction between them by accepting some and then rejecting others. Hmm. And there is also in this some food for thought for for those Muslims who, like you mentioned earlier, as well, there are people who accept and reject some people. Yeah. Um, as because some people they reject the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, whom we believe God Himself has raised in fulfillment of the prophecies um, of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and who then came to illustrate and demonstrate the truth of Islam. Hmm. So it's not a matter of picking and choosing, is it? Yeah. And we can also see that this concept, which I probably should have mentioned first, is ingrained in our fundamental beliefs as Muslims. So you have the five pillars of Islam. You also have the six articles of faith, which almost all children know. Yeah. And amongst one of them, one of the six, is the belief in all prophets. 
Yep. And as with any other codes and regulations of any belief system or association, you can't just disregard or break them because, of course, there will be repercussions. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it, if you could briefly tell us um, now th- the difference between us and the other Muslims is that we have believed in the promised Messiah, has uh, uh, the Hazrat uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed um, of, of Qadian. May Allah be pleased with him. So, why is it important for us to believe in 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 in, in the promised Messiah? Um, it as, are there any indications in the previous books of this Messiah? Does Islam say anything of the coming of the Messiah, and that we have to believe in him? Would he be a prophet? So, briefly, just just for the benefit of benefit of our listeners, so they mm-hmm. also understand why we believe in the promised Messiah. Absolutely. I mean. First of all, as Muslims, we, we turn to the Qur'an, right? And we see that in Surah Juma, chapter of the Holy Qur'an, um, it was alluded to uh, the companions of the, the Holy Prophet, which was a reference that the, the Holy Prophet made, that when this verse was revealed, the companions asked, uh, whom is it that you refer to that other people haven't joined us? Yep. And there'll be a person who will bring these people together. Mm-hmm. And he placed his hand on a Persian companion of his, mm. Uh, known as Salman Farsi, peace be upon him. And he said that he will be from among his people, from among, from among his sort of progeny, yep. the Persian, Persian um, background. Yep. And that's exactly how it turned out to be, because the promised Messiah was the claimant um, of prophethood from the Persian uh, background. And more so we find that when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was asked about... Um, the the state of Islam. He he mentioned how there'll be monarchies and uh, dynasties, etc., and there'll be kingships like we have the Umayyad and Abbasid empires. Yeah. But there weren't spiritual caliphates. Yeah. And the Holy Quran says that in Surah Nur that God Almighty will reestablish caliphate. He will mm. re, he will bring he will bring successors as he brought them from uh, from the past. Yeah. So that's something to bear in mind when you join these two things together. You find that. Surely there was a prophet to come with this caliphate. Yeah. And this prophet, uh, according to the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was uh, to be on the precepts of prophethood. Yeah, that's, so that's a very interesting you. thing, isn't it? The hadith also says that the, 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 the caliphate that will be established again will be on the precepts of prophethood. So that exactly. it's, it mentions that, yes, there will be prophethood established again because... The caliphate that we had in uh, after the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the rightly guided caliphate, that was mm. on the precepts of Prophet as well. So similarly, we will have it again. Um, and and there are you know uh, a lot of mentions uh, uh, and prophecies of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mm. where he mentions clearly that the prophet that will come will be a, 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 a Nabiullah, a prophet of God Almighty as well. And he's ding- distinguished the the, um, the 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 features of the prophet, the Messiah that will come, and the, the features mm. of, of, let's say, Jesus, uh, son of Mary, and Jesus of Nazareth. So there are a lot of, you know, things. I know um, I just had a, have a quote, you know, I, I, I didn't want to, we don't want to go too much in detail, but start a whole new topic as well. Yes, that that will start a new topic, of course. But um, for the listeners, if uh, you're interested, um, you can also always uh, go to our official website, which is alislam.org. 
So alislamaltogether.org and you can find out about Ahmadiyyat and our beliefs as well. I mean, from learning, there's there's no harm in learning, of course. So uh, <laughs> uh, the more you learn, the more you learn about other religions as well. So mm. I'll invite uh, the, the listeners to uh, go to the website and look for that as well. Um, moving on to a, a more related question to our topic. Um, uh, it, According to Islam, the Islamic teachings, um, some might ask, uh, you know, um, that why can a woman not be a prophet or a caliph? Um, so mm. you explained what a caliph is as well, right? So yeah. what what uh, what is our beliefs on that, and what objections would surround this topic? Mm. <clears throat> I, I think uh, first of all, it should be made clear to everyone that the Holy Quran repeatedly emphasizes the spiritual quality of both men and women. So women, and women, there's no discrepancy in that regard. Women can attain all those spiritual heights that men can attain. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Quran also stresses that both men and women will be equally rewarded in the hereafter for their actions in this world. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not a question of status or anything, because Islam is a religion that wants both men and women to flourish in their respective spheres. Mm-hmm. Now, in... In regards to the wording of your questions, though, we understand that as a prophet or caliph, one essential role would be that of an imam, yep. which is to lead the five daily prayers. Mm-hmm. And one's entire day would be consumed in, in worship in the sense that everything would revolve around these five daily prayers. But with the case of women, for example, Islam, of course, being an advocate for leniency, which is often uh, overlooked, has, has allowed women to be excused from prayer when going through, for example, the menstrual cycle, as it would invalidate one's prayer due to the physical state one's body would be in. Hmm. But what's what's more is that Islam has catered for the comfort of women too, and people often undermine this whole um, concept of Islam where they, in fact, liberate women. Hmm. And with that in mind, could, could one really expect women to be leading five daily prayers without ceasing to do so, especially when uh, they have this call of nature hmm. to tend to? Of course not, because if anything, it would prove to be quite burdensome. So it's, it's a sense of liberation for women. And another point that you could maybe add here is that is the is the point of modesty. Because yeah. men and women, of course, they have equal access to mosques. They have their own space and their own area of prayer, but they are segregated from each other, right? Mm. But this is all for the sake of comfort and modesty, because Islam is quite cautious when it comes to intimacy, especially in regards to prayer. And the reason for that is, for one to be totally immersed in prayer, one can't have all these distractions. Hmm. Which is why you'll often see that if you glance around a mosque and you enter a mosque, you'll see that the prayer area will be quite, not bland, but it won't be very vibrant. There won't be pictures adorned on the walls and portraits and stuff like that. It will mostly be black and white. It will be neutral colors. Hmm. And that's all for the sake of being focused and um, fixated in your prayer. Uh, through through your mind mentally and spiritually. Hmm. And the same could be the case if the opposite gender was to also intermix within uh, the prayer area. One's eyes could waver, and this is just a natural occurrence. Hmm. So if then, for example, you were to assume that women were to lead prayer in front of dozens of men, it would most probably place their honor, freedom, and comfort that they're enjoying otherwise at risk. Hmm. So allegations as to why Muslim women can't be imams, caliphs, or prophets even... Um, they're all baseless because, I mean, it's not to say that they cannot aspire to attain the status of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, because 
both men and women, you and I, all of our uh, sisters and brothers, they make the same supplications and prayer of wanting and desiring to attain the status of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Mm-hmm. And if there was discrimination within the genders, then surely um, we would be told that uh, we would have been told by either God Almighty himself, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that we would have to change the wording of this because women can't attain that status, but that's not the case in Islam. Mm, wonderful. Um, that that clarifies why women, and I mean, maybe men do get distracted as well. Uh, if, if there is just, when it comes to uh, prayers and we're only with men, then we do not get distracted by the, the opposite gender, of course. So, uh, very well in, uh, explained, uh, Imam Osama. Uh, uh, the last question that I want to ask to you is, if you could explain this in, in uh, um, two or three minutes, that why does God punish or inflict trials on the people who claim to be lovers of God? And You know, those who claim to be lovers of God are very well known as the prophets of God. Um, so, mm. why... Ha, do they have to go to such punishments or or uh, trials? Mm. I mean, there is a saying of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, where he stated that if if Allah wants to do good, uh, if Allah wants to do good to somebody, He afflicts him with trials. So I'm assuming that's maybe where this question stems from. Mm. But you'll find examples of where the companions of the peace uh, of, of um, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him were desperately call unto God Almighty and even pray for hardships. Because some of them used to think that God Almighty wasn't content or pleased with them. Yeah. Like, I mean, can you really imagine that? Where there were times where they would live stress-free, but actually that would be the time where they would stress and worry the most because mm. they realized they weren't being afflicted. Mm-hmm. So it's something that the ordinary mind can't really fathom. It's yeah. something that's out of a normal nature to think, okay, why am I not being uh, inflicted with with uh, with trials and hardship and tribulations, etc. Hmm. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Welcome back and uh, assalamu alaikum to the Drive Time Show, where we're being reflecting on the on the year that was 2022, and we are looking back at the month of August on the Drive Time Show. In August, we held special Islam 101 week, and over the course of week, we uh, focus on the five pillars of Islam, and zakat is one of the pillars of Islam. Uh, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, "Takes arm out of their wealth, so thou, so that thou mayst cleanse them and purify them thereby." Now let's hear more on this topic from Imam Atar Rahman. Imam Atar Rahman Khalid, who's a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, serving in uh, in Ireland. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Wa alaikum assalam wa Pleasure to be here. Zakallah uh, for joining us this afternoon. Talking about uh, zakat, is is zakat a, a tax or a charity? Well, um, it's, you know, a tax is something which a person being a resident of a country has to pay on his income. And um, in Islam, all all these um, zakat included are a form of charity. So there's different forms of charity. So it it is not at all a tax. It is a form of charity. And within Islam, there are two forms of charity. 
one is compulsory and the other is voluntary and zakat falls in the former category so it is compulsory and a person who uh, recognizes himself as a muslim is uh, is to be is to pay zakat and we have to remember that it's not levied at uh, against someone who is earning but in fact anyone who has uh, savings up to an acceptable level uh, has to pay the zakat mm-hmm. now uh, politicians are speaking about the need for a wealth tax now, is this something which zakat is uh, compatible with and how would this help you know with the with the current economic crisis well um we 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 see you know the inflation's going up and we see a, a a big gap between the rich and the poor and it goes on increasing where we see you know all over the world there's there's a very small percentage of people who actually own the majority of wealth in in the world hmm. and zakat is actually something really really beautiful that when we look at this we see that it is a really good way to remove poverty and to reduce this gap between the rich and the poor so uh, a, a basic islamic principle is that um you know all the resources of the world mm. whatever allah has created is not for any specific individual it is for all of humanity and so for example the second caliph of the amdi muslim community when explaining the concept of zakat he has given the example of a mine say if someone com- comes across a mine and you know whatever that mine is of that the assets that come out of that mine the, the wealth that comes out that is a shared right of all of humanity it is not just for the individual who happen to come across it and find it Mm. Now if that person employs workers to dig out whatever uh resources buried in 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 the mine and he pays them still he hasn't paid the due to mankind that would be just their you know their their work the labor they put in and so if that person was to even pay them extra still it would not you know uh, provide for the need or the the right the rest of humanity has on that mine and so hmm. we have the system of zakat that it is payable uh, on certain assets um like gold silver you know if someone has sheep you know uh, livestock it's payable on that and uh, so in this way the the purpose of zakat is actually to bring wealth into circulation and to prevent and stop people from hoarding wealth and this is one of the issues we see nowadays where you know the rich people rich companies very you know huge companies they um try and see and find countries through which they can avoid having to pay tax mm. and the the basic principle of islam is that we should we should have compassion for the the poor uh people in society and we should try and bring them up so 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 just like you you the, the question you asked uh, the, you know the answer the simple answer to that is of course the cart is something if introduced would you know 
bring the standards of the poor people uh, to to a level where they would be able to afford, you know, uh, running their home, paying for their bills, and and putting food on the table. Absolutely, absolutely. And with with this financial sacrifice is also uh, you know also needed as well, and that's something that we're also discussing the benefits of financial sacrifice. But there are many people in today's uh, you know in today's society with all the you know energy bills going up, inflation is also um, you know quite high as well. There are many people who are actually struggling uh, when it comes to their finances. Financially, people are struggling. So. The question which a lot of people ask is that why can't we leave financial sacrifice for when you know when we're more financially stable? Mm. That's, that's a good question. Firstly, we have to understand the 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 essence of financial sacrifice and why there is so much emphasis uh, placed by Islam on financial sacrifice. Like just you know we're talking about zakat today and uh, wherever you know Allah has commanded. Uh, Muslims to pray, and you know it's the it's an important part of Islam mm. um, to offer our five daily prayers. Alongside that, in many places, uh, um, Allah the Almighty has mentioned um, you know the paying of zakat. And regarding financial sacrifice, there's a great deal of emphasis. Um, so we we must remember that the source of all wealth is God Almighty. Mm. He is Razak. He is the provider. So if he is the provider, then then there should not be the concern that, you know, once we have saved, once we are in a good position, then we should spend in the, the way of Allah. So as Allah the Almighty mentions the Holy Quran, who is it that would give Allah a goodly loan so that he may return it mani- manifold? So this indicates that we should not be worried that, you know, if we spend in the way of Allah, if we spend on the uh, you know on the poor then we ourselves will struggle because Allah has promised that he would multiply that manifold and he would of course look after the person who's spending in the way of Allah and there's countless examples of this especially you know in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, every year uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community may Allah be his helper he delivers a few sermons in which he talks about financial sacrifice and he presents examples from um, th- those countries which are less developed. And there's examples, countless examples of such Amdi Muslims who are themselves in great need. And even when they were told by missionaries and office bearers of the community that they should not make such a huge sacrifice, financial sacrifice, um, as they made themselves, they they were seen to be themselves in need, but they said no. You know, we understand the importance of financial sacrifice, and we know that Allah the Almighty is a provider. And then we 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 see how Allah the Almighty arranged for their needs to be met. So there are so many different examples of this. Of course, absolutely, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Um, when we talk about, I mean, talking about financial sacrifices, uh, I mean, as you just mentioned as well, when someone does make a financial sacrifice or any sort of sacrifice for God Almighty, he he you know he increases that he 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 gives that person's bounties and favors as well, and when God says that he will increase your wealth seventy times, uh, is that do we sort of take that literally that 
if we spend in the way of Allah, um, if we make a sacrifice in the way of God, that He will increase it seventy times. So, what 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 is actually meant over here? So, so in Arabic, there are certain um, digits which are used to denote abundance. So, what this means is that Allah the Almighty hmm. will multiply our wealth in abundance. And and sometimes we see this in this world, where people have experienced this, where they spent spent in the way of Allah the Almighty, mm. and Allah multiplied that by by many times, and it can also indicate that the reward would be in in heaven in the next life, and and that would be manifold. And as the Holy Quran describes, when the believers when they experience these. Um, you know, favors of Allah in heaven, they will know that this is the reward for that action which I performed in in my last life. Hmm. Also, we, when people make uh, make any sort of sacrifice, people sort of want to they they want to know um, if you know whatever they have sacrificed has actually been accepted or not. So. A lot of people ask this also that how would we know that we have made a sort of sacrifice? How do we know for certain that God Almighty has actually accepted this one, and uh, you know that that this will be that this will be counted amongst the good doings or our good deeds? Yeah. Well, well, one simple way is you know if you see in your life that you are blessed, right, hmm. and um, you know. If you're constantly in hardship and you feel that, uh, you know, of course, sometimes, you know, you could it could be a trial from Allah Almighty. But, you know, as the Holy Quran says, the, the, the truly righteous people who, you know, do everything for solely for the sake of Allah, including financial sacrifice, for them are two heavens. Mm-hmm. And so they, in, in, a, in a way, experience inner peace, inner satisfaction. Which is indicative of the fact that their sacrifices, their worship, are are acceptable to Allah the Almighty, and of course, you know, uh, deep down we know when when we're doing something for show, when we have uh, you know other ulterior motives in in some of the things we do. For example, if we're making financial sacrifices and we know that the money we are giving to a charity is actually um, earned in an unrightful way. So then, of course, that that's, that charity is not acceptable. Just like Allah says regarding prayer in the Holy Quran, mm-hmm. that you know, um, such prayers become a curse for a person, right? Mm-hmm. Which are not performed for the right reasons, right? Yeah. So the people who perform their prayer and they're actually unmindful of their prayer, and so it is either just for show or for some other reasons, then such a prayer becomes a curse, and so. so so if a person lacks this inner peace, inner contentment, then this would be a sign that um, somewhere, some some condition is not being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean that inner that inner peace is very very much important as well. Um, when we when we make this sacrifice, uh, when people you know uh, believe they they want to sacrifice, and they do make these sacrifices, is it? Is it that uh, people will just have to make these sacrifices and then not spend on themselves? Because some people would uh, say that you know, if they've uh, got if they saved up for something, 
um, they they won't spend it on themselves. They won't spend anything. They won't buy anything nice for them, or they won't have uh, enjoy you know the luxuries of this world, even if it's a little bit. But what they will do, they will just give all of that money to charity. Is 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 that the way then, or is it okay to spend on yourselves as well sometimes? Well, of course, if Allah the Almighty has given you the means, then you know based on your means, if you live in in you know a comfortable setting. That is, of course, you know, allowed mm. as long as you are paying the dues of of humanity. So, for example, if zakat is uh, applicable to you, mm. that you have assets which are sitting around for a year, uh, which are accessible, which you know um, are past that threshold upon which zakat is applicable, then you must pay the zakat. And so, if you're paying zakat, and if you are discharging the dues of your fellow human beings. Then, of course, if you have the means, of course, you should, you know, dress comfortably. And so this this was a question even the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was asked. Mm. And we have examples of, you know, the senior companions of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who would, who would themselves dress in, in good clothes. Like, mm. for example, Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq, who was a trader uh, by, by profession. And sometimes he would... Uh, you know, we have the example that he brought uh, all of his possessions in order to present it uh, in charity on one occasion. Hmm. But sometimes when people would come who had not seen the Holy Prophet ﷺ before, they would confuse Hazrat Abu Bakr and think that he was the Prophet just on account of his elegant manner of, of uh, you know, clothes. Hmm. He would dress immaculately in, in really fine garments. And so this, he was, of course, the first Khalifa, and he has a the most revered status in in Islam. And so this illustrates that, of course, we can't spend on ourselves. Uh, in no way does Islam, uh, you know, tell us not to. But on the other hand, the Holy Quran does guide us that we must not be extravagant and we must not waste. Allah the Almighty does not like those who who are you know who waste and you know are extravagant and you know in in this regard we have countless examples as well uh, from early islam and also in the history of ahmadiyat where allah really blessed members of the community and the early companions with so much wealth and they made so many sacrifices financial sacrifices where they spent on the poor and um you know uh, um, you know, when it came to small things, they would be quite uh, an outward person, a worldly person may think them to be miserly. Hmm. But in fact, it was on account of this teaching of the Holy Quran that they would take great care in how they use their, their money. Um, we have the example of Sir Zafrullah Khan Sahib, um, you know, who um, was the first foreign minister of Pakistan. Hmm. Allah had blessed him with wealth. But he would, you know, during while making journeys, he would just um, walk to a further bus stop just to save uh, some money, which he thought that then he can contribute towards charity. So we, this is another aspect that we must make sure that we are not wasteful. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, some good advice uh, there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and uh, turning, enlightening us about this uh, very core principle, one of the pillars of Islam as well. Uh, Zakullah once again and uh, have a lovely day.
That was Imam Atar Rahman Khalid and he was talking about zakat, the obligatory um, charity in Islam. Now, fasting is one of the five pillars of Islam and there's a one full month in every year in which fasting is prescribed for Muslim all over the world. Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, O ye who believe, fasting is prescribed for you during a fixed number of days as it was prescribed for those before you so that you may be so that you may become righteous this the was from chapter 2 was 184 let's let's take a moment to reflect more on this topic imam muhammad ahmed khushid who is uh, an imam of the md muslim community based in manchester uh, imam uh, khushid jazakallah for joining us and welcome to the drive time show jazakallah thank you for having me um, now, as as you know, we we are discussing um, the month of uh, Ramadan or the, the the act of fasting today at our show. Um, I think one of the most basic or uh, more sort of relevant questions we get in this regard is about why does God and uh, want us to stay hungry and thirsty? Because when when we generally speak about religion, it it seems to be more of a spiritual um, enhancement. So why do we need to stay hungry and thirsty for that? Yeah. Um, look, it's firstly when you look at the Holy Quran, the Quran tells us specifically that we fast for one main reason, and the verse is that for you who believe, fasting is prescribed for you, as it was prescribed for those before you, so that you may become righteous. Right? So becoming righteous is the main goal of fasting, of prayer, of all the good deeds that we carry out. Now, having said that, somebody like you mentioned might argue that you know. Why does God require us to stay hungry and thirsty? And to answer that question, there's two ways we can answer that. Is that the Quran tells us that man has been made weak. That we were created weak. Somebody who undergoes weakness will make mistakes. He will sin. And one of the ways to atone for your sins, there are many ways that God the Almighty has prescribed. One great way is fasting. Right, so if you think about it, the philosophy behind this is that if I give up things which are permissible for me for the sake of God Almighty, then surely this will um, bring me closer to God Almighty. And the second way to answer this question is uh, we look around the world, and there's so much, um, part, there are so many parts of the world where you can see there's discrimination and there's parts that go through famines and hunger. And millions of children die every single year. So Islam particularly tells us to fast for the reason that when we undergo these uh, these stages of hunger and thirst, then we realize that our brethren around the world, our brothers and our sisters, different parts of the world, do not have these basic things that we take for granted every single day. That leads us to saving up money and saving up our wealth and giving that to those who need it more than us. So Islam gives it more from a spiritual perspective as well as a physical perspective. The act of fasting is a great way to gain the pleasure of God Almighty. Hmm. Very well said. Uh, Imam Khushid, uh, we, we have established that obviously fasting is an essential concept in um, gaining the nearness of Allah the Almighty. So what happens to a person who does not fast? I mean, for example, if there is a Muslim and he's supposed to fast, but he does not make that commitment or he does not fast 
Will he or she be deprived of the nearness of Allah the Almighty or will there be some kind of punishment or what what negatives comes out from not, you know, partaking in this blessed month? Again, it, it really depends. I mean, we've established in the previous question that this brings one closer to God Almighty. Mm. As a Muslim, we know that the the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophets before him used to fast to gain the nearness of God Almighty, right? So if somebody doesn't fast despite knowing that this act will bring him closer to God Almighty, then he should really question his own faith that, you know, why am I not fasting if I know this will bring me closer to God Almighty? Now, having said that, what is the biggest punishment we can undergo? Like, the biggest punishment, more than any form of punishment, is being deprived of the love of a dear one. Right, let's take a physical explanation that we love somebody very dearly, our parents maybe, our children, and we can no longer be near to them. Them being further away in itself is a great punishment. The silence is an absolutely great punishment. So if we apply the same rule to God Almighty, that he tells us this is a means of being closer to me, and if you stay, if you do not practice this great act of worship, you will be removed from my nearness. You will no longer be near to me. So if somebody truly loves Allah the Almighty, for him this is a great punishment knowing that Allah will be displeased by us not fasting, right? Mm. So you realize that it's not just the physical aspect, it's the fact that God Almighty, He really loves the act of fasting. There's a hadith saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And he says that every worship act of worship that you carry out, that is for yourself, including prayer. The only worship that is for my sake, and I will be, I will guarantee uh, my happiness for it, is fasting. You fast for my sake. That is, you know, that's what God Almighty is telling us, right? So when we know that this is a great way, this is one of the five pillars of Islam, a great means of gaining his, his nearness. So if somebody who doesn't uh, fast, not only is he being, um, he's furthering himself away from God Almighty, but he's also missing that opportunity to atone for the mistakes that he has made in the past. Absolutely. Zakla um, for that, Imam Khurshid. Obviously, um, from from whatever you, you've just told us, you, we, we can definitely um, understand why there's been so much emphasis laid on this. And when Allah the Almighty himself says that all the actions of mankind are sort of for themselves, but when it comes yeah. to fasting, it's actually for the sake of God and he himself will be um um the 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 uh the reward reward yeah. the reward for that exactly so that obviously explains us explains to us um the importance of this month now um a bit um about human um sort of behavior imam khurshid we, we we tend to sometimes to uh to to eat during um uh, the 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 month of ramadan or, or we drink a sip now that sort of happened to all of us at uh, at some point. So, what happens to someone like that? Is there a punishment for this as well? Well, look, the first saying of the Prophet peace be upon him is that our actions will be according to our intentions. So, if we did not intend on consuming that uh, whatever food we had, or or you know quenching our thirst in the month of Ramadan on purpose, then that is, of course, of displeasure to God Almighty. It's a sin in the faith of Islam. But as the question would suggest, it's an accident. You didn't do it on purpose. You know, you maybe forgot that you were fasting and you had something to eat. 
then in that way there is a saying of the Prophet Sallallahu that in that case it is as if Allah the Almighty fed you or he quenched your thirst and so this is this is what Islam tells us that there is no punishment if you consume something by accident yeah absolutely that's uh, that's uh, you know quite uh, uh, quite interesting because a lot of people might think that oh if Muslims they by mistake you know happen to drink some water or have some something um, then then you know the, that that's the end of it but of course you know God Almighty is so merciful as you mentioned that you know um, he would forgive if it's not intentional however that doesn't mean that some <laughs> some some people just have short memory or try, tries to you know uh, <laughs> bend those rules <laughs> so <laughs> one has to be wary about that um, okay um, moving on to um, Another aspect of Ramadan, um, uh, Imam Khushid, is the Holy Quran and Ramadan is 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 uh, quite closely linked. Um, for many of our uh, listeners who might not be Muslim, could you explain what what relationship Quran and and the holy month of Ramadan has? Right, the word Quran itself means a book which is read over and over again. So it contains a sort of a prophecy that this book will be the most read book there is. And you can tell that every Muslim reads the book of the Qur'an, which is called the Holy Qur'an. In the month of Ramadan, there was a practice that the Prophet, peace be upon him, used to undertake. is that he used to try to complete the entire Qur'an in this blessed month. And it is narrated that the angel Gabriel used to recite with him. But the most interesting part is, is that the Quran was revealed in a period of 23 years. And the revelation began in the, in the month of Ramadan and it finished, the revelation finished in the month of Ramadan. And Prophet wasallam, peace be upon him, had such a, he had such a great desire to read the Quran in the month of Ramadan um, that it became a tradition for Muslims around the world that we try to read the Quran in the month of Ramadan more than we normally do in the rest of the year. And you can, you can see that Muslims whether they're children or they've spent their entire lives in the faith of Islam, they make it a point to particularly read it, the entire book, at least once in the month of Ramadan. So what this means is that once you're reading the book of you know, the Quran, you then start to ponder over the meanings and the translation, and it's a book of instructions how to be a better human being. Then you start to practice those teachings and you realize that the month of Ramadan, through the blessings of the Quran as well, you've ended up becoming a better human being, a better Muslim after this blessed month. So the blessings are endless. The connection between the Quran and Ramadan is absolutely wonderful that this spiritual revolution within one is assisted through understanding the Book of God Almighty. Absolutely. Um, now, we obviously we, we, we are um, uh, talking about um, the positives of Ramadan and we did speak about uh, the health benefits to this and also the spiritual. Now, one um, sort of uh, criticism that we also receive is that many Muslims across the globe make their children fast. Um, there have been stories of children being locked in their rooms because they were just a, weren't able to cope with it, um, especially in the um, Asian subcontinent. There, there are stories uh, of, as such. Um, now, it just can't be true that children also are, uh, have the obligation to fast. 
So this is something I'm, I'm, I want to know from you more about. So is it is fasting uh, obligatory upon young children? And the second aspect that would be that if it if it is not an obligation, how are we as parents um, supposed to involve our children more in Ramadan? That's a great question. I think the allegation or the questions that people pose are absolutely right. If this is happening and Muslims do tend to force their children to fast, that is an absolutely unacceptable um, uh, thing that they're carrying out. Mm-hmm. And what form of worship is that that forces young children to, to partake in it? Look, if we take the example of prayer, which is the greatest form of worship in Islam for a Muslim, God Almighty tells us that if you can't pray, standing up, then sit down and pray. If you can't sit down and pray, then lie down and pray. I mean, that that's the philosophy of Islam, that it provides ease for man so that it's practical for him to worship, right? If this teaching is for normal individuals who are able to, you know, they're instructed to pray now, how can we say that the same God Almighty requires young children to fast as well? Mm-hmm. So this means that these Muslims who maybe out of ignorance or lack of knowledge force their children to fast, they're actually depriving themselves of the love of God Almighty because he doesn't instruct young children to fast. Now, not just young children, um, women who might be pregnant, who are pregnant, but people who are unwell, who are on medication. There are many students who are so, who become, uh, especially in the exam period, they become unwell and they require something to eat. I mean, whoever, all of these people are exempt from fasting. And the beauty about fasting is that if you've missed fasting, you give something in the way of God Almighty. You give some fidya, which means you're still providing for the poor people. Mm-hmm. And after this blessed month, you complete your fasts anyway. Right? So th- this exception that Allah the Almighty has provided, that is for everyone. But especially young children, they should not be fasting at all. Mm. I mean, what good is fasting if that destroys your well-being, your health? And there are examples of children are not passed out due to the hunger or the thirst. I mean, how can that be pleasing to God Almighty, right? We should use our common sense, especially that if something is causing harm to one, especially a child, that has nothing to do with Islam. Yeah. Now, how can we involve our children in fasting? There's great ways. We just spoke about the Quran. Let's uh, give the habit of our children to learn the Quran, to read the Quran more often. Or we, we instill the habit of giving to the poor in this month of Ramadan. And we tell them that the Prophet, peace be upon him, used to give so much, uh, he used to make so much financial sacrifice in normal days, but in the month of Ramadan, he gave twice as much. Mm. And when we teach our children these things and tell them that, look, the same children your age around the world are perhaps not even having one meal a day. So let's provide for those children. So instill those good morals and those good habits, teach them about the true meanings of faith, and that way they will develop the 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 love of Ramadan in their hearts and as soon as they are ready physically they're old enough they will want to fast themselves mm. because they've seen the blessings attached to it yeah I think that's that's a really important point especially if if you know for for Muslims also listening in perhaps you know yeah. that, that yeah. we have to make sure that children are not put in a position where they're not ready to go for, with that obviously you need to be mature you need to be ready as uh, as you said uh, for this um, so that's an important aspect as well lastly um, the month of Ramadan out of 12 months it's it's you know only once during the year that we have the month of Ramadan so is is this like a 
one off spiritual exercise or is something that or is this something that we have to kind of you know put in our our, our life for the rest of the year as well that's a great question that's something that we speak about often in the end of the month of ramadan and we often speak to our members and our community members and other people that if we do not continue the the, the blessings of, of ramadan we've gained the blessings we've realized that this has given us so much in this month that we should not bring this to a screeching stop we should try to continue gaining those benefits that we've attained in the month of ramadan right so for example if we've gained the habit of giving to the poor let's continue doing that if we've gained the habit of um, even let's take the physical part the physical elements of uh, of fasting which is which has great health benefits there's a great movement called intermittent fasting people fast for health benefits and the prophet peace be upon him prophet muhammad peace be upon him used to fast every single week every monday and every thursday and there's something there are many people who um, uh, who've introduced these forms of dieting they actually Uh, say that Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him was one of the inspirations that led them to fasting twice in a week. But that's just one physical uh, element, and the blessings are countless, right? And then let's take reading the Quran for example. So we continue we taking that good habit, and then do it for the rest of the year. Right? So the, the if we realize, I mean, the best way of expl- explaining this is that. Look, you've taken something away from this month of Ramadan. You've realized that it's made you a better human being. You've gained the closure, the 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 nearness of Allah the Almighty. You know that Allah likes fasting. It keeps you away from sin. Mm. Then why stop it? Yeah. Right, let's continue doing it, even if it's little, because as a saying of the Prophet peace be upon him, that the most desirable acts of worship for Allah the Almighty are those which are consistent. Mm. So if we consistently try to do things attached to the month of Ramadan throughout the year, then that is the most desirable thing to God Almighty. Mm. Well, very, very well said. And of course, I mean, if you if you're trying your best to consistently do these good things on the on the over the course of the year, mm-hmm. you might you know towards the end of the year falter a little bit or lose a little bit of consistency, and there you know Ramadan comes again to mm. you know keep you fresh, <laughs> re- refresh those habits. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Imam uh, Ahmed Khushi. Always good to have you on Voice of Islam. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Imam Muhammad Khushi, and he was talking about fasting. Now, after the belief in one God, belief in the Day of Judgment is the most emphasized teaching in the Holy Quran. And no other revealed book draws such a vivid picture of the Day of Judgment as the Holy Quran. Now I'll leave you with the recorded um, audio to reflect more on this topic. But before that, I want to thank you to my producer, Faiza Meza, and also my technical team for doing the great work. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Imam Rizwan, as, as you uh, are obviously aware that we are talking about the day of resurrection today as, as part of our um, Islam week here at the Voice of Islam radio. Um, the first question I, I want to ask you is, does a person's soul immediately meet Allah after death or will all creations meet Allah later on the Day of Judgment? So the Holy Quran has described meeting Allah Almighty Lika, which is from the same root as the word mulaqat, which we're quite familiar with. And it describes that about the Day of Judgment, the last day. So there is a special meeting which is described that only applies to the hereafter. 
So although we do want to meet with Allah Almighty in this world, we want to commune with Him, the Holy Quran has spoken extensively about that, but when it comes to when we leave this world and go to the hereafter, there there is a special change that happens where we're able to experience the nearness of God Almighty much more clearly, and that the Holy Quran has referred to as meeting God Almighty. But there also, the Holy Quran has, and the Ahadiths have described some nuance here, that it's not that we just leave this world and immediately we're in our full spiritual maturity. But the Holy Quran has described that there are stages that we pass through. In the same way that when we're born into this world, we don't just immediately meet you know, our parents and understand and know and have our full senses. It takes a long period of time for us to mature and get to a point where we're able to um, you know, really experience this world. So in the same way, the Holy Quran and Ahadith have described a period of development in the hereafter before that last day of judgment where that we go through before we have that real meeting or that liqa, that mulaqat with Allah Almighty. Hmm, thank you very much, Izzwan, for that. And I think another aspect or a question perhaps that people ask is that is there a, a difference between the hour for an individual or the, the day of judgment for an individual and a day of judgment collectively for the uh, humankind. Uh, how, how do we answer that from an Islamic perspective? Mm, yes, that concept of the hour, that's mentioned quite a few times also in the Holy Quran, and it generally seems to refer to that, you know, the, 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 the world coming to an end, and that time of accountability. So that's the general reference that it has, although it can at times refer to the coming of a prophet of God, because that's also a revolutionary time. But, um, you know, there, again, like I mentioned, that the Hadith and the Holy Quran, they've also described that there is a difference between that time, that hour, that day of judgment, when we're all gathered together and judged together, <clears throat> and there's a different phase before that, where after we pass away, there is a time of spiritual development until we ultimately reach that stage. So that this has also been expanded on a little bit by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, he said that when we pass away, then we will know where we are headed. We see this from a hadith. We know whether we are going to heaven or hell. But we haven't had the final analysis done. That day of judgment it comes later, where then not only are our actions you know, taken account of, but there is a comparison done with the rest of humanity. And that comparison is what is referred to on the day of judgment. So there, you know, one explanation we can have of this is that if you were to be told that, let's say, or if I were to be told that I got 85% on a test, that number would tell me if I passed or not, but it doesn't give me context. If I afterwards find out that most of the class got 90s, then it, it, it becomes very different for me. Hmm. And if I find out otherwise that most of the class got 70s, and I find out that 85 is actually highly exceptional. So that comparison makes a big difference. And also, it adds to the punishment and the reward as well. You know, a person who fails and it's only between him and the teacher, it's one thing. But then that aspect of humiliation of failing and seeing the failure compared to everyone else, the open books on the Day of Judgment, they take a very different aspect. So those are the two things that are described about the hereafter, that sort of barzakh, that sort of transitory period where we know where we are headed. And then that final day of gathering, khashir and qiyamah, where the comparison is done and the final decision is made. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Um, Jazakallah for that. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, Imran Zaman, uh, what is uh, the meaning behind um, the punishment of uh, the grave? What kind of punishment is, 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 is meant by that? 
And also, um, is is there some sort of uh, reward of the grave as well? Yes. So, you know, that's described in a hadith where the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, said that when a person passes away, then he gave the metaphor that it is as if in the grave a window is opened towards heaven or towards hell. And then as time passes, that window becomes larger and larger. So in the very beginning, a person sees where they are headed. They are able to experience it in a very small extent. But as they grow more mature, that experience becomes more expanded and more mature for them. You know, this is similar to, for example, let's say a child is born with a congenital defect, God forbid. So at the very beginning of infancy, sometimes it's not very obvious because a child hasn't developed yet. But as the child gets older and older, the effect of that congenital defect, the difference between that child as he grows into an adult becomes very much more clear as compared to other adults. So the suffering that a person experiences because of that deficiency and that defect, it becomes more pronounced later on. So this is also what our soul is. You know, our soul is like a fetus, a spiritual fetus within us. Our actions, they affect our spirituality, and they, in the same way a mother who consumes alcohol or drugs, can cause you know, harm to her fetus. So in the same way, we also, if we do wrong, then we cause harm to our soul, resulting in being born into the hereafter as an unhealthy creation, as an unhealthy soul. So in that spiritual infancy, which is referred to as the grave, there a person begins to experience something of you know, their capacities that they've developed in this world, but it's not full yet. But gradually as time passes, as that person grows to a spiritual adult and eventually to the day of judgment, then that experience becomes fully open to them. So what is definitely clear from a hadith is that, you know, there is a transit, there is a transitional period, there is a period of growth, whether a person is healthy or unhealthy, whether a person is headed towards reward or punishment, where that experience gradually grows and expands and matures for them. All right. Um, still, um, obviously, relating to, to this uh um, this this discussion about uh, punishment uh, after death or the punishment in the grave or the dis- transition period, um, the, the object or the philosophy of heaven and hell um, in, in Islam. So if, if a person has passed away, does the punishment or the heaven or, or, or hell has anything to do with the physical body of, uh, of a person in the grave or is it just... Um, the, the, the spirit or the ruh, you could say. Yes. So what we find, you know, in the Holy Quran, for example, is that it's not possible to interpret the punishment or reward, these experiences of the hereafter, in a way that's literal, that's physical. For example, the Holy Quran has said that man kana fi hazihi ama ama, that whoever is blind in this world will be blind in the hereafter, which we can see and understand that very much the only way this can be interpreted is a way that is metaphorical. It would be against justice and fairness that a person who just happens to suffer from blindness should continue to be blind forever in the hereafter. There were many righteous people, even companions of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him, who were blind or began suffering from blindness in their very old age, as happens often in a small number of cases. Hmm. So where the Holy Quran speaks of our capacities in the hereafter, there it speaks of spiritual sight and of spiritual blindness. And this is the only way that the um, you know, descriptions can be interpreted consistently. So the thing is that, of course, a person could interpret or try to interpret it literally, and it applies to a certain number of verses of the Qur'an and the Hadith. But the Holy Qur'an has said itself that it is a book that is consistent through and through. So a person, when they interpret 
their descriptions of paradise literally, they end up contradicting certain verses of the Holy Quran. They end up contradicting certain ahadiths. So the viewpoint that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community puts forward is one that is consistent and it can be consistently applied to every verse of the Holy Quran and every hadith in that those descriptions are allegorical, they are metaphorical, they describe spiritual realities, which are definite realities, but it describes them with physical parables that we experience in this life. Absolutely. Um, Imran Rizwan, there are um, obviously many rewards that are uh, spoken about within Islam um, in regards to the uh, afterlife. Two of those um, that I want to ask you about here right now. One is that men are promised female partners in the heaven. So the the question obviously arises there. What uh, about women? Why don't they uh, have been promised any such thing? <laughs> and a second uh, part of this rule should be um, that martyrs are promised to get seventy virgin um, uh, virgins in 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 Jannah in paradise. So. Where does that concept come from? Yeah, uh, people of uh, those who criticize Islam really, you know, yeah, focus on on this kind of allegation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. And so when we see the Holy Quran, its main focus is actually on both men and women, because it says repeatedly that we will have azwajum mutahara, pure spouses. And this plural word of azwaj it applies to both men and women that we will have spouses, husbands and wives that are pure. And also, what's important to remember is that. When we talk about the maidens or those types of things, it describes that in the hereafter, for example, one verse says, They will have maidens of equal age. So whatever the age of those companions of paradise are, it will be equal to us. If they will be young, then we will also be young. So this also shows that in paradise, there is not, not that concept of age of time doesn't exist as it does in this world. Everyone will be young in that sense of how we understand it in this world. You know, the simple way of kind of describing this is that the, the hereafter is something that is a world that is very different from this world. So if we, have to, if we were to understand it or explain it, it has to be done with parables that are related to this world. You know, for example, if you were to explain to a child how, what the happiness of marriage is as an adult, you would have to explain it in terms that they understand, explain it in the things that they enjoy, like candy or those types of things. So this is what is the nature of the analogies used in the Holy Quran. Now when it comes to maidens, also here it has to be remembered that when we look at the Quran and the Ahadith, how is it described those maidens? Because this, this concept of 70 virgins, that's not found in the Quran, nor is it found in Bukhari or Muslim. It's found in the other books, the other four books of Ahadith. But what's mentioned in Sahih Bukhari very clearly and Sahih Muslim, this is, found, this is a Hadith that is very authentic, found in both books. It describes those women, those hoods of paradise. And it says that you will be able to see the marrow of their bones through their flesh and their bones. Now we have to pause and just visualize that for a second. Because anyone who tries to interpret the women of paradise as a source of sexual pleasure, how does this description make sense in any way whatsoever? It's basically looking at a picture of radiology, for example, looking at somebody through their flesh and blood. There is nothing sexually attractive about that. There's even in the most deviant types of sexual pleasure that we'll find on the Internet, I've never heard of anybody looking at pictures of x-rays and getting any pleasure out of it. So it's 100% clear here that the descriptions that are found in the authentic ahadith in the Holy Quran, they can only be interpreted consistently but being taken metaphorically, that it is the purity of those spouses, the spiritual purity of those spouses that is being described. 
And the moment a person tries to interpret the ahadith on this subject literally, then they end up facing in irreconcilable contradictions, for example, with this hadith in Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, that you, that, that you won't be able to make any sense of. This is why we see that, you know, at some periods in Islamic history and Islamic art, artists tried to make attempts to sort of paint and visualize in, in, in drawings and in paintings the women of paradise. And there was nothing attractive about those images because it's not possible to interpret those things as sexually attractive. Hmm. So where the Holy Quran describes that companionship, it describes it firstly as, um, you know, as, a, as a companionship of azwaj, which is neutral. And then also it describes Qur and also Wildan that those things of this world, like wives and also children, like very like the, the, the way that a family enjoys babies, very young children, Wildan is also used. That is something that both men and women, in fact, it appeals more to the maternal instinct. So that thing of having children, young children, babies who will never grow old, that is also a pleasure and a happiness of this world that is described that will never end. So this is, you know, the nature of the descriptions that we find when it comes to the spouses in paradise. Mm. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? But that the one you... When you explain it and when you look at it from the metaphorical point of view, it, it all kind of makes sense. But then I guess if you want to understand Islam or if you want to understand the afterlife, then your mind also has to be pure, right? I mean, you, you cannot have a worldly mind or a, or a mind that is focused on worldly pleasures to understand the heavenly pleasures, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it's an expression of people's own, um, I suppose... Um, you know, the desires which they reflect onto the Holy Qur'an, even if they have to create contradictions with Islam, they want to push forward that interpretation because what they actually want is the pleasures of this world. They're not really interested in spirituality, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, okay, so moving on to the uh, belief that, obviously, that there will be uh, a judgment, uh, that people will be accountable for their uh, deeds um, at the Day of Judgment. What about people that are not Muslims, uh, people that perhaps don't believe in any God, are atheists? Um, how, how, how will they be accountable? Will, will Allah the Almighty also hold every human uh, accountable for their deeds? Mm, yes, definitely. And, you know, the thing is that, you know, what the Holy Quran has described again and again is a parallel between the physical and the spiritual laws of nature. And it has described spiritual illness, spiritual, you know, things that are disobedience as punishments as being like an illness. Now, in this world, if a person, you know, has bad habits, they eat too much sugar, then they're going to get diabetes whether they believe in diabetes or not, whether they believe in doctors or not. They're going to suffer the consequences. If, there's, if the laws of nature are real, then they have consequences. So the same thing applies with spirituality, that when a person does something that is unhealthy for his soul, then naturally it is going to have consequences. It's going to be unhealthy. It's not a purely subjective thing. There has to be some objectivity to the laws of nature. So there what Allah Almighty has said and has described in the Holy Quran is that as long as a person is sincerely seeking the truth, and even if he's just on his journey towards Islam, but he's, he, he dies before he becomes a Muslim, then Allah Almighty will forgive him for whatever shortcomings may have he may have been left in him. There the Holy Quran only says that that it is only a person who pursues a religion other than Islam that it will not be accepted of them. But otherwise, as long as a person is trying to submit to God with sincerity, with humility, then eventually they will find themselves to true Islam if given enough time. So this is why we see that there's a lot of people, even like you know, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, there are countless narrations of people who accepted Islam and Ahmadiyyat because they received 
a true dream, a vision, even revelation. So why was it that they had such communion and connection with God and such righteousness that God Almighty favored them to give them revelation to guide them to the truth? It's because they were sincerely submitting to God and searching for the truth. And even in that stage where they were not Muslims yet, Allah Almighty revealed himself to them and, and, and pointed them towards the truth. So it shows that even if a person is not a Muslim yet, but he can be so loved by God Almighty because of his righteousness that Allah Almighty can reveal himself to him and you know point him towards the truth which he gradually accepts. So even if a person leaves this world, dies and passes away while he's on that journey, then as God Almighty has said in the Holy Quran, it is only a person who is pursuing something other than submission to God who is accountable. But as long as we're on the right path, and even as long as that path is leading to submission, which is the true essence of Islam, that's what Islam means, submission, then there is no fault on that person and no accountability. God Almighty is forgiving and He is compassionate and He understands our weaknesses and shortcomings um, more than anyone. Absolutely. Jazakallah um, for that, Imam Rizwan. Um, one last thing that I would want to ask you today. Um, obviously, we have spoken about the Day of Judgment and what will be happening to us. But another question that sort of rises to one's mind is what will happen to this world? Will this world and all the creations um, be destroyed at the Day of Judgment or will there maybe be, uh, maybe be uh, another uh, sort of... Um, mankind that that will be then given uh, this world to live in or what's the the concept there of uh, from an islamic point of view yeah so you know what is described in the holy quran and the hadith is that that last hour that last punishment that comes on mankind will be an unprecedented destruction now the question is that will anyone survive that dest- destruction there we can look for the examples in previous nations so for example when we look at the prophets who came before when they were rejected, and not only rejected, but when they were persecuted and the wrong of the people exceeded all limits, then destruction came on those people. So it's only fair and only logical that when a prophet comes to the whole world and then people reject him in the worst possible ways, then the same destruction that came on individual tribes and cities and communities before would come on the whole world. It's just a continuation of that same principle. So this is what Islam has described that when Islam has spread throughout the world and when people have understood the truth, but then even after that, gradually when people turn away and they reject that last warner that is sent to them, then destruction will come on the world in the same way that it came on different peoples that are described in different holy books before. This is described in the Quran and the Bible, other places. So in those previous nations, we see that at times they were completely wiped out. There was nothing left of them. But also at times... They were destroyed in a way where the majority of them were destroyed and where their nation and their civilization was destroyed to such an extent that it was never able to recover afterwards. There was only remnants of them left. So this is extrapolating on this point. The fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he explained that it is possible that all of mankind will be destroyed in that last punishment, or it is possible that there may be some remnants that are left. And those remnants of humanity that are left, they would gradually decline and decay over hundreds of thousands of years in the same way that it took with evolution that we reach this point after you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years to reach to this point. So also humanity or those remnants of humanity might then continue to decay and just continue um, to, to, to fall um, for hundreds of thousands of years as you know just like any other life on this earth um, until until we eventually cease to exist. So that's uh, that, that that is the indications that are given in the Holy Quran and the Hadith and by the guidances of the Khulafa. 
Thank you very much, Jazakallah, Imam Rizwan Khan, for uh, joining us and obviously, um, you know, answering these questions in, in great detail for our listeners. Thank you very much, as always. Uh, great pleasure oh. having you on. All right, thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum.